You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Ephesians 4 verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all of the heavens that he might fill all things. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning and we, uh, we do require, we ask, that, Father, you'd be pleased to bless us this morning, that you would open our hearts, O oh Lord, to uh, these profound truths that you have written to us in your word, and that, Father, you would open, the, open these profound truths to our hearts, Lord. Oh, Father, if we're to gain from this in any way, Lord, uh, we, we do require your gift. We require your giving. We require your giving of insight and understanding, and we require, O oh Father, your grace that we may align these our hearts with these truths, O oh Lord. So, Father, we look to you for these things, and uh, we, uh, we acknowledge our dependence upon you with this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last week, as I said, my initial plans were just to do a flyover of verses 1 through 16, and um, it should have been fairly easy to do because there's a natural three-part division in these verses, and I brought it up as the commentators say, you know, verses 1 through 6 speak of unity. Verses 7 through 10 speak of diversity. Verses 11 through 16 speak of maturity. So that's easy enough. We have unity. We speak about that for a couple minutes. We have diversity. We speak about that for a couple of minutes and then on to maturity. But however, um, prayerfully uh, in considering these things and thinking about unity, I think it was profitable for us. And I believe that we were led to uh, spend all of our time last week on unity. And if you look at verse three there, Paul calls us to be eager to maintain the unity. Now, of course, this is what we call, I introduced two words last week, which are not new to some of you, but perhaps are new um, to others. And those two words are indicative and imperative. Now, what in the world is indicative and imperative? Well, Paul's letter here to the Ephesians can really be divided into two parts. You have chapters 1 through 3 as what we call the indicative. The indicative being what God has done uh, to us in Christ Jesus. Um, our scripture uh, memory verse, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 3, would be a really good place to camp out along those lines where Paul, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And even before that, it's good for us to be reminded of who Paul's initially writing to. He's writing to believers who are in Ephesus. So he's writing to the church. But not just any church of any flavor of any kind, not just any assembly of any kind, but to the church of Christ. 
And it's important that we don't skip this. And it's interesting that the first three chapters of are largely given to this indicative, what God has done uh, for us in Christ Jesus. And it's only after these chapters are over with does Paul move to the imperative. What is the imperative? Well, it's what our response should be to these great things that God has done to us in Christ Jesus. And I used an example um, last week that, um, that I used a number of years ago when I was teaching homiletics at the seminary. You know, I, if you recall, I, I brought some quotes, and I got this from Brian Chappell. I brought some quotes of a popular radio personality uh, in, I believe, in the St. Louis area, and he had all these quotes, and the guy was wildly popular, and he did a lot of exposition on the law, and and um, I would read a couple of quotes, and I would ask the guys in the class, tell me, what, what denominational perspective is this guy from? And they would take their guesses, you know, and then I would read, I'd read some more, and they would take their guesses, and I'd read some more until finally everyone's out of guesses, and I was out of quotes. And um, I, I shared with them, listen, this guy wasn't a Christian at all. He was a Mormon. And it got so quiet in there. And that is the risk if we just run off to verse 3 in chapter 4 and we say, well, we should be eager to maintain the unity. Well, the question is, if we skip the first three chapters, we might say, unity in what? Unity in what? Well, unity in the body. What body? Unity in the body of Christ. So you can see the important part. Now listen, if you run off to verse 3 of chapter 4 and you just begin... Uh, preaching these great imperatives, if you will, preaching these great responses, if you will. Generally speaking, people like that. It's known as moralistic preaching, and it goes over very, very well because it doesn't trip over things that are offensive. But you see, as soon as you start bringing in chapters 1 through 3 and you start bringing Christ into it, well, then it starts to sound exclusive. You see what I'm talking about here? Now you start to get into some troubles. And unfortunately, that's the reason I'm afraid that a lot of people skip these things. But when we skip these things, arguably we have to ask, have we at that point stopped being Christian? And I think the answer to that is emphatically yes. Now, the interesting thing here, okay, Paul calls us, who are us? We are the church, the church of Christ. He calls us to be eager to maintain the unity not just unity in a vacuum, but unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, unity in what spirit? Unity in the Holy Spirit. And in fact, last week we saw that Paul gives a sevenfold argument for unity. In verse 3, um, he says unity of the Spirit. Verse uh, 4, well, I'm sorry, in verse 4, we have one body, we have one spirit, we have one hope. Okay, there's three. In verse 5, we have one Lord. Here we should understand is Jesus. We have one Lord, one kurios, the Greek word. It's applied to Christ. So we have, one G we, have, we have one Christ. We have one Savior, one who is anointed. We have one faith. That would be the content of the gospel, right? We have one baptism. And we have one God and Father of all. 
So here is this, this, this pointing to one body. There is one body. We are all uh, collectively brought into one body, and we are to be eager to maintain the unity of this one body. And we might ask ourselves, how are we to go about that? Well, uh, we get some direction in verse 2. We're to go about it with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And we looked at those things last week, and we looked at them by looking at their opposites. We were thinking about humility last week. What's the opposite of humility? Well, it's pride. So we talked a little bit about self-assertiveness and how we've, we've got so much self-assertiveness all around us, especially with social media. You know, you don't have to be an expert in any field to be a voice today. You know, all you have to do is have thumbs. And I think I asked about orangutans. You remember that? The, do orangutans do have thumbs, I think. Did anybody look it up? Just giving our brains a rest for a minute, you know, on something that's funny. But sometimes you wonder why I do that. I actually have really intentions. It gives, it gives your mind a break. Um, but interestingly enough about orangutans, while we're on the subject, do you know the average orangutan is, what, only 147 pounds or something? Yet they can lift over 500 pounds. And they're stronger than seven people combined. Don't be messing with orangutans. <laughs> Didn't that give your brain a rest just for a moment? Humility, all the self-assertiveness that's all, um, all around us. We really need to conduct ourselves in humility. We find Jesus doing that. Jesus had authority but in the context of such amazing humility and gentleness. You know, it's the opposite of gentleness, roughhousing, isn't it? It's roughhousing. You know, and, you know, you think, you know, I think about these videos I've been making. I'm having so much fun with these videos. And Donald made me a, he made me what they call a thumbnail. Some of you know what a thumbnail is, you know. Like when you're, when you're scrolling down looking at videos, that initial picture that's um, there, that's called the thumbnail. And if you don't have a thumbnail, YouTube gives you a choice of three. And I'm telling you, you get the choice of silly, sillier, silliest looking. I mean, that's why, like, the first four or five videos, I mean, I'm silly looking enough as it is. Uh, but then, like, when the camera flutter, like, catches your facial expression and, pro like, our faces move a lot. The camera, the camera catches those movements, and you're, like, making all these weird-looking faces, and that's what gets out there, you know. So I decided after, I think, about five videos just to take a coffee cup and just to lift it up like this, you know. And I forgot, like, the coffee cup that I used in that video we bought when we were down at the Billy Graham Training Center. And I thought, well, I better keep Billy Graham out of this because I don't know, there could be some copyright stuff. So I turned it around, and I forgot what was on the other side. I really did until I looked back at the video, and I thought, oh, great, there's James 4.8 on the other side. You guys probably thought that was intentional. It was a complete accident. There's James 4.8, you know, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. I'm like, oh, this is great. Can't say I had anything to do with it, but uh, other than holding the cup out there, thinking it's just red on the other side. But um, Donald made a thumbnail of that, which is so cool. He took that picture and he put, did what he does. He put some other things around it, so that's what we'll use. But my point in bringing up the videos is I'm very, I'm working very hard to try to be gentle in these videos. 
Um, that's not going to make these videos popular. If you look at some of the videos that are done by news agencies and what have you, some of them have an impressive amount of subscribers. Two million subscribers, for example, one I saw has. And, and they'll do a video, and within 20 or 30 minutes, they might have 31,000 views of that video already. You know, and it's really impressive. And, and, and people do a lot of studies. There's a lot of stu there's a whole science of how to do these videos and get these videos to be seen. And if, you're, if your desire is to be popular, then you're probably going to want to go about it a certain way, and you're probably not going to want to be gentle. There's probably going to be some roughness. If you watch a lot of the videos that are popular, unfortunately, they're not real gentle, are they? Um, nor are they videos that you would say are real humble. Um, and that's sad. But I want, to, I want to throw this into the till especially as we think about many of the news videos that we saw that we see that are personality driven and they're driven in so many respects where they're not gentle they're not humble they're not bearing with one another in love that's for sure um, one thing that they're also not doing is they're not they're not bringing us together so I, I mean as popular as these videos are they're they are becoming increasingly popular, but they're not bringing any... I, I can't see evidence that they're bringing us together. Can you? Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'd like to be wrong on this. But I don't see any evidence over the last two or three years that we've been brought together. It seems to me that we're just as divided as we were. And I think Paul's telling us why. I mean, Paul is, of course, in this context, speaking to the church, but there's principles that we take out of this that we can take to the workplace with us, and I hope we take these principles to the workplace with us because these principles work, and we have to make up our minds. Do we want to be popular, or do we want to be useful? Now, I want to be useful, and I think everybody in this room wants to be useful. How do we be useful? You know, I, I, you know, a, a lot of folks that are making YouTube videos would look at the numbers that I've got going on and say, this is an abysmal failure. But I got to tell you, I am so excited about the numbers because this last video, like YouTube, if you, you do a video and stuff and after it's out there for a little bit, you can look at all these metrics. You can look at all they, they've got. It's really quite amazing. And one of the metrics is tells you how many unique viewers they have this phrase. Is anybody familiar with this? Like you have a unique viewer. What is a unique viewer? That's someone who has never been on your channel before. Within like, I don't know, 24 hours or something, there was 35 unique viewers on the last video that I did. Now, I was so excited about that. I'll tell you why. If Becca came in and said, hey, Rick, you know, when you're done with the service, there's 35 people out in the parking lot that would like you to talk to them for a couple of minutes. Can I tell them you'll be out to talk to them in a couple of minutes? What do you think my answer would be? <laughs> there's 35 people out in the parking lot. They want to hear something about the gospel. Can I tell them to hang for a few minutes so that when you're done, you can come out? Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? That's cool. Um, that's that's so cool, isn't it? Now, how do we go about this? Um, we want to try to go about this in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, right? Um, this is how we, I think this is how we're going to, um, how we're going to win people. Jesus was so winsome because this, listen, when he, when he wanted to be authoritative, he could. That doesn't mean you're never, that doesn't mean you never raise your voice. I, 
Uh, you, you, for your homework this afternoon, if you want homework, there's a woman in our Bible study uh, on Mondays that asks for homework, you know. If you want some homework, um, read Matthew 23, and I think you get a good idea of Jesus raising his voice. But for the most part, winning people, we win people in humility, win people in gentleness, we win people with patience, we win people bearing with one another in love. Because really, at the end of the day, we win people when we love people and loving people is going to produce these attributes, isn't it? You know, last week when I was talking about patience, you know, something that I've learned over the years is you can be really patient with people you love. And I think your level of patience is in many ways in proportion to how much you love the person. I mean, think about that, how patient we are with people that we love versus how patient we are with people we don't know. So um, Paul has a lot here for us, and we must move on. Uh, when, we get, when we get to verse 7, we come to another point that Paul is about to make. And in verse 7, Paul says, but, that's an important word. That means something else is coming here, right? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, in verses 1 through 6, Paul's talking about unity. He's talking about all of us being brought into one. There's one body. But in verse 7, he switches gears and he says, but to each one of us. So in verses 1 through 6, he's talking about the corporation. And in verse 7 through 10, he's talking about the individual. Both are important. We don't get smothered in the corporation as individuals. No, as individuals, we can look around the room and we can see that we're all different, aren't we? And this is one of the most peculiar things about the church. Because in this world, you can find unity, but usually when you find unity in this world, I would probably think almost always when you find unity in this world, you're going to find it in the context of uniformity. But where in this world do we see unity in the context of diversity? In other words, where do we see unity in the context of where we're all allowed to be different? God has made us all different, right? We can't lose that. You see, that's important. Because this is, this is one of the things that causes the church to shine. This is one of the things where the beauty of the church is really seen. That there could be, there could be Jews and there could be Gentiles. Okay, there's nothing amazing about Jews and Gentiles until Jews and Gentiles start to go down to the hot dog shop. And well, a hot dog might be a bad example. <laughs> I am tired this morning. <laughs> that cracks Roy up. He likes that. Except for, when they, except for when they sit down and they dine together, where it's really visible that they're enjoying each other's company. Now, previous attempts would require the Jew to become, or the Gentile to become as much like a Jew as possible. But the beauty of the church is the Jew and the Gentile, they still remain Jews and Gentiles, yet they come together. You follow me? And notice what Paul says here. He says, grace was given to each one of us. That means all of us receive grace. And of course, he's been talking about that in one context. He says in chapter 2, famously, 
that it's by grace you've been saved. This is verse 5 and then verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's all of grace that we come to faith. It's all of God's doing. It's not something that any of us deserve. It's not something that any of us can earn. Uh, It's something that's given to us as a gift. But there's also grace here, and Paul's going to develop this grace in terms of gifts as well. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what's important to see here is that uh, all of us receive different gifts, and even those of us who seem to receive similar gifts, um, God doesn't always give those gifts according to the same ability, does he? Now, um, I, I always use my basketball disaster uh, as an example of this. You know, I cannot play basketball to save my life. Um, it's just not a gift that I've been given. I'm not very good at basketball. Yet another person um, excels at basketball. Yet when this person is put in with, you know, some others, folks who play on the NBA, my goodness, you, you can see everybody's got a different, a different level of giftedness. We could say in, in preaching, are all preachers gifted the same way in terms of being able to communicate the gospel? My heavens, no. Uh, it, you know, this is a subjective thing to say, well, who's the greatest preacher of the 20th century or the greatest preacher of the 19th century? It's a very subjective thing. It's kind of like in music where you say, well, who's the greatest guitarist? That's a subjective thing. But generally speaking, when those kind of polls are taken, there's a list of 10 people that typically will turn up um, it will come down to 10 people. When it comes to the 19th century, who was the greatest preacher who ever walked the planet is probably going to be Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He is probably going to win, and there's very good reason for that. God had blessed him with the ability to communicate off the scale. Was he the best exegete of Scripture? No. Was he the best communicator of Scripture? Yes. No question about it. Were there other great preachers during that day? Absolutely. There were lots of great preachers. But in his ability to communicate the gospel, and especially when you look at the way he went about it, he would spend all week long praying for a text. Sometimes he didn't read it, write his sermons until the middle of the night on Saturday night. And then he would go on Sunday morning and preach what he would preach. It's just amazing. He was a genius. Now, if you go to the 20th century, uh, you, you're probably going to, especially if we stay in England, talking about England, let's go 20th century England. A couple of names are going to come up. One's probably going to be Dick Lucas. Another one's probably going to be Eric Alexander. But another name that's probably going to come up over and over again is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Again, it's subjective, but I bring Martin Lloyd-Jones up because I am very helpful. I've been very helped in this particular passage by Martin Lloyd-Jones. You know, I I was thinking about doing one sermon on verses 1 through 16. Lloyd-Jones wrote a whole book on verses 1 through 16, 285-page book. I think it's about 285-page book. Um, His insight into the Scriptures and his ability to communicate that insight was clear off the charts. My point here is we're all different, we're all gifted in a different way, and our, our abilities are different. Jesus tells a parable of the talents where he gives each according to his what? His ability. And that ability varies. 
And I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on this because we're living in a day right now where everybody wants to talk about this equity, about like our ability is all the same, if you will. Like everybody's ability is the same. And there's this push. We're going we're gonna to make all of the output the same. Uh, everybody's everybody's uh, output is going to be the same. Listen, that's kicking against God's clear design. It's not going to work. God just simply hasn't done that. Um, he has blessed some with unusual abilities. He's blessed others with average ability. Um, that's just his design, is it not? Uh, and here we see uh, grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, when we get to verse 8 and following, uh, we get into some stuff that's a little bit difficult. I hope we can make through all of it this morning, but we'll see how we go because it's... You ever read through this and, like, scratch your head and say, what is Paul talking about here? Um, I'm guessing many of you are like me. You, what's he talking about? A host of captives, gifts to men, ascending, descending, lower regions of the earth. What's all this about? Um, it, it's not an easy text of Scripture, is it? Now, what's Paul saying? Well, First of all, Paul is talking about individuality here. He's talking about diversity. He says to each one of us, verse 7, um, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. But then notice what he does in verse 8. It's easy to skip those first three words. Therefore, it says. It's easy to skip those words, but what's Paul doing? He has made a statement, and now he is appealing to Scripture for the authority behind that statement. And, and this teaches us about the sufficiency of Scripture. We see Jesus doing that. Sometimes people ask me, Rick, why, why do you, how can you say the Bible is the Word of God? Why do you say the Bible's, why do you believe so much that the Bible is the Word of God and other people's Bibles, like the Koran and what have you, are not the Word of God? And my answer is Jesus. I say this because of Jesus. Now, some will say, well, could you flesh that out a little bit? Well, because Jesus always appealed to the Scriptures as the Word of God. And then I asked the person, tell me, tell me, who do you think Jesus is? A really common response is, well, I think he was a great teacher. I think he was a great prophet. Okay, well, could he be a great teacher if he's teaching falsehood? Is he a great teacher or is he a great prophet if he's teaching nonsense? Go read the Gospels and you'll see him over and over again. He appeals to Scripture over and over again when controversies arise. And that teaches us about the sufficiency of Scripture. Paul's already done that with unity. Notice how he says there's one, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What's he making an appeal to? He's making an appeal to the gospel. Where's the gospel come from? Scripture. He's already appealed to Scripture for the first for the first argument, now he's appealing to Scripture for the second argument. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Okay, uh, what in the world is that all about? Well, for the last two weeks, we've been looking at Psalm 68, and some of you are saying, well, there's a verse in Psalm 68 that says that, isn't there? Yes, and it's verse 18, and I want to take some time, and I want to show you some things about this verse, because one of the things that's commonly said about Scripture is it's full of contradictions. If you look at Psalm 68, go back to Psalm 68 with me for a moment. And again, Psalm 68 is about God's protection and provision. And in verse 1 of Psalm 68, 
Uh, David, the author of the psalm, says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. This is in, this is in accordance, this is in the likeness of what Moses used to say. It, later, you could go back to Numbers 10, and I think it's maybe verses 35, 34, 35, 36, right here, towards the end of Numbers 10, uh, Moses would say the same thing every time the Ark of the Covenant would go. Every time God would say, okay, tear down the camp and let's go through the wilderness, he would say the same thing. And verse 1 is an echo of that. Uh, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. Uh, this is to bring us uh, back to that text to say, okay, God is on the move. Now, in the Old Testament economy, he's resembled by the Ark of the Covenant. His presence is resembled by the ark. God is on the move here. He's on the move. Uh, his enemies shall be scattered. His smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. And what's being painted here is a picture of a procession or a parade, if you will, a victory parade. Ancient kings used to do this. Ancient generals used to do this. Some of the movies we've seen over the years, you know, movies that are uh, set in the context of ancient Rome, you'd see the ancient Roman generals marching into Rome. Um, they're victorious in their battles out there. And what are they carrying? They're carrying spoils that they've gathered. Uh, they've, they've gone and they've, they've uh, beat their enemies and they've, they've ravished and pillaged the villages and they've carried, they've grabbed all the goodies and now they're bringing it into uh, the city of Rome and they're going to divide all of that up. They're going to, they're going to divide all that spoil up. And in the train, if you will, or in the procession or in the parade, there are prisoners who are uh, chained or they're in uh, being pulled by ox carts in these cages. Uh, these are prisoners that are being brought into uh, the city. And uh, this psalm is set in that kind of context. So that when you get to verse 18, it says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, what's going on is the psalm traces the, the travels of the Ark of the Covenant from Sinai, where, the, uh, where Moses gets the instructions to build the Ark of the Covenant, and it traces the Ark of Covenant from Sinai through the wilderness wanderings all the way into the city of Jerusalem. And think about the many wars that were fought and the many skirmishes and the many trials that took place in between those times. God had provided for Israel all that way until finally it says, when you ascended on high, or you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Okay, the Lord has been victorious. He has ascended on high. He has ascended on Mount Zion in the city of God. That's the context of the original psalm. That's the context of Psalm uh, 68 in its original setting. Now, what is Paul doing? He is looking back on this psalm and he's saying, yes, this spoke more, more than just that original context. This speaks more than just simply the Ark of Covenant being brought into Jerusalem. This foreshadows Christ. It foreshadows Christ in his ascension if you will. Now, notice in Psalm 68, verse 18, it says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men. And if we look again back to Ephesians 4 and verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18. He says, when he ascended on high, okay, we have a he instead of a you. No big deal. The psalmist is saying, you, Lord, 
You, Yahweh, that's the word, Yah, actually it's an abbreviated form of Yahweh. You, Yahweh, you have ascended. Um, Paul says he, no big deal. He ascended on high. He led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Now, here it is where um, the skeptic will sometimes say there's a discrepancy here. There's a bold contradictory here because Paul is saying that he gave gifts to men and David is saying that he received gifts from men. And some have gone as far to say, I mean, they're saying, well, what's going on here is Paul, you know, he's quoting from memory and he didn't quite get it right. That's what's going on. Now, think about that for a moment. That's a frightening doctrine of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, if that's what he did here, what did he do everywhere else? I mean, is this a habit of his? Does he do, you know, that, that, that's absolute nonsense. Um, uh, that's certainly not what's going on here. But what do we do? I mean, sometimes people, you ask people if they believe in the Scriptures, and they'll say, well, you know, the Scriptures are full of contradictions. Now, some people have just heard that, and they've never looked for themselves. But some people have read the Bible. Uh, you know, I'm so, ex I'm so excited because there's people that I'm meeting and talking with who uh, they, they say the, Bible's, the Bible contradicts itself. Uh, I'm, I'm running into multiple people that are saying this. That's why it's on my mind so much, uh, that the Bible's full of contradictions, and some of these people have read the Bible. And they could point to this. They could say, well, wait a second. Now, in Psalm, in, shouldn't it say, shouldn't Psalm, or Ephesians 4, 8 say, when you ascended on high, you led a host of captives, and you received gifts from men? Shouldn't it say that if he's quoting the Psalm? And that's what they're saying. But that's not what Paul has written, is it? So what do we say to that? On the surface, I think the first thing that we ought to say is that it does appear to be a contradiction, doesn't it? It does. How do we solve this contradiction? Is there really a contradiction here? Well, the answer, of course, is no. You know, Alex is shaking his head like this. So it must be no, right, Alex? It's got to be no. Well, how, how do we solve it? Well, it, it, you know, and I'm, I'm really thankful. A number of people have, have, uh, have said the same thing, but I'm really thankful for Martin Lloyd-Jones. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, back in, in the early 60s when he was teaching on this, he says, you know, um, Acts chapter 2 and verse 33 really help us uh, solve this uh, apparent contradiction. And if you look there just for a moment, Acts chapter 2, verse 33 you know, there um, the Holy Spirit is being poured down upon this community. 3,000 people are being converted at this time, and people are trying to figure out what's going on. And Peter stands up, and, and he begins to preach, and he preaches the gospel. And in verse 32, he says, this Jesus, who had been crucified, uh, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter is saying, listen, we have seen him. Uh, he has risen from the dead, and we have seen him. Uh, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Now pay attention to this. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Aha. Uh -huh. Having received the gift, he gives the gift. 
So is there a contradiction between Ephesians 4.8 and, and Psalm 68, verse 18? No, it's not a contradiction. It's a powerful lesson. What's the powerful lesson? The powerful lesson is that every gift that we receive in the church of Jesus Christ comes through Jesus Christ. He receives it, then he gives it. There's not a contradiction here, loved ones. There is a powerful lesson here. Everything that he receives, he gives. Every spirit, we could ask ourselves, well, what does he give? Every blessing. What blessing? How many blessings? Every blessing. Every blessing from where? Every blessing in the heavenly places he gives to us. Um, so there's, there's no contradiction here. But you know what? We have to take time. We have to first take time to study these things, and we have to take time in humility. First of all, recognize, you know, you're right. It does seem like there's a contradiction here. But let me give you something to think about. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 33. And actually, there's no contradiction here at all. What's going on here is a powerful lesson. When, when the, when the, and you think about it, think about it for a minute. When the generals come into town, they've been victorious in battle, and they begin to, they begin to, they begin to sort out all the goodies. They begin to, to divide all the spoil. Well, didn't they first receive that spoil before they could give that spoil? You see, it's one and the same event, isn't it? You know, just if you get the imagery in your head, it'll help you remember. If you just get the imagery in your head, it will help you remember this. Now, if we're going to get through the rest of this, I better get going here. Um, back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. He ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Who are the captives? What captives? Well, what does Jesus accomplish on the cross? What does he accomplish when he dies on the cross? In other words, who gets defeated on the cross? You know, there, there's, there's, there's one thing that gets defeated on the cross, and that's death, isn't it? Death. You know, if you can almost imagine death being in a steel cage and being carried off into this, into this procession. You know, there you've got, you're, you're seeing Jesus. He's leading the procession. There he is. He's, lead, he's leading the procession, and people are singing for joy, and everybody's standing, and, and, and here come the captives, and what do we have being carried here? We have death being carried. It's defeated. Death is defeated. See, now you can start to read Psalm 68, and you can start to, your heart starts to get involved in the joy of it, doesn't it? Because it might seem strange trying to go back into David's day, 1,000 B.C., but it doesn't seem strange today in 2022 if we look at that procession and we see death being carried on the ox cart. Imagine a parade going up Route 2. Imagine 4th of July and there's a parade going up down here on Main Street and um, we have death being carried on a float, captive, Jesus leading the parade. Boy, if our community could believe something like that, you know, how different our community would be. But that's the gospel truth. It's what Jesus has done. We could say Satan and all of those, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. You know, uh, in verse 9 it says, 
and saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended? Okay, that's simple enough. Before, because Jesus came from heaven, before he could ascend, he had to first descend from heaven, right? I mean, for us, there would be no, no descending. It would just simply be ascending because we're earthly. But Jesus, as the Son of God, has come from heaven, so he first descends. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? John 1, 14. So he descends before he can ascend. But notice it says he descended into the lower regions of the earth. Now, here's a place where a lot of ink has been spilled. And I, I think some interpretations that maybe aren't so helpful. Um, some, and there's an ancient, and this has a lot of church history on its side, that what is meant by lower regions here are uh, the netherworld, the underworld, if you will, the world of the dead, the pit, the grave, if you will. And what is taught is that after Jesus is crucified, he descends into this netherworld. You know, this is kind of snuck in the Apostles' Creed here. That's why we have an asterisk. You know, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, I want to make sure everyone understands that we're not advocating uh, that particular interpretation. If you look on the Apostles' Creed in your uh, bulletin there, it says literally he descended into the lowest uh, in his suffering upon the cross. Christ uh, did indeed suffer the anguish of God's wrath and death in our place. That's what we mean when we say he descended into hell. He experienced the anguish of hell, if you will, in our place on the cross. Uh, but we're not saying, as others have said and others maintain, that after his resurrection, he descends into the lower, if you will, this lower region of the earth. Uh, he descended into uh, hell. And, th and th some of it gets pretty fanciful about what takes place there. Uh, um, and I don't think that's the best explanation uh, of this text. And some will say, well, okay, then what does it mean if what you're saying, okay, so what did Jesus do? He descends from heaven to earth. Yes, that's what I would argue. And someone will say, why would, he, why would he say lower regions, the earth? Why would he say that? Well, before, before we offer an answer, let's let Scripture interpret itself. Because we have a psalm, actually, that I think shines a lot of light on this. I think it shines a lot of light on this. And if you turn to Psalm 139, there's an interesting passage here that's given by David. And keep in mind, when the Apostle Paul was sharing the gospel, did he do it from his New Testament or did he do it from his Old Testament? Huh? Some of you are laughing. He did it from the Old Testament, didn't he? Because they were in the process of writing the New Testament, weren't they? Now, in Psalm 139, verse 14, David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in where? The depths of the earth. Now, where is David being conceived? Is he being conceived in the netherworld somewhere? We don't have to, you know, uh, that, that's, uh, that, that's silly and fanciful, isn't it? Um, he's being conceived in the womb on earth. But this is pointing us in a direction. If we go back to Ephesians 4, and we look again at verse 9, and we say, okay, all right, in saying that Jesus ascended, 
it, it certainly implies that he also descended into the lower regions. Well, let's point to his incarnation. It's pointing to his incarnation. It's pointing to the fact that the blessed Holy One of, of, uh, of, the, of the cosmos, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son of God, would come and descend, taking on a human person and Jesus Christ. That's what's being implied here by the lower regions of the earth. But I think it's implying more than just simply his incarnation. It's to encapsulate his entire um, earthly ministry to include his crucifixion and to include his resurrection. Why would I say that? Well, you remember we were in Philippians earlier in our service, and I said, hold your place there because we're going to come back to it. You're probably wondering if I was ever going to do that, and I've been wondering if we'd ever make it that far myself. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, I think we have an inspired commentary uh, on this passage. And, of course, I've got commentaries in my office that say the same thing. Um, in verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He descended to the lower regions of the earth. If we want commentary on what that is, I submit to you that there we just we have commentary on what that means. He takes on a body. He is stationed in a low place in that body. He's stationed in poverty. Right? He lives a life of poverty. He lives a life of a servant. And his the cross that he bears is literally a cross. He dies. He becomes obedient, verse 8, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's under the earth again. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what do we have happening here? Well, what do we have happening here is being spelled out. It's the descent that's, that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 and 9. What does this descent involve? It, does, it involves Jesus' earthly ministry. It involves his passion, if you will. Uh, it involves his, uh, his crucifixion. It involves his burial. Um, but then... In verse 10, back to Ephesians 4, verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all of the heavens that he might fill all things. Amen? So one last thought, and I'll close. So that puts Jesus above. If you look at chapter 1, verse 20, in fact, um, for sake of context, Look at verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of, of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Look at verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Amen. A lot of explaining. 
Next week, we'll begin to flesh all this out. It's just not this week, though. I think our brains, do you agree our brains have had enough this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truth here, Lord. And we see that in what appears to be a contradiction, we see that there's a glorious truth being told here that, Father, you're teaching us an amazing thing that in this receiving and giving, uh, again, it appears to be a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. But what it's teaching us is a glorious lesson. As Martin Lloyd-Jones had said all those years ago, it's a glorious lesson that every blessing that we receive in the church, we receive through Christ. As he receives, he gives. And we see the fulfillment of this ancient psalm that as the ark was brought up into the city of Jerusalem, it foreshadowed Jesus being taken up into the heavens and being seated at the right hand of you, O Father, and there uh, being above all things that every knee shall bow, and he fills all in all. O Lord, teach us what that means, for our time is spent this morning. But teach us in upcoming weeks, O Lord, uh, what that is. What is the breadth of this, O Father? And Lord, we thank you for your word, which instructs us. We thank you for your word, O Lord, which teaches us. Align our hearts against these truths, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.